Thank you for bearing with me. Genesis chapter 11, 1 through verse 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the warning of your word. And we thank you for the assurance and the comfort, the provocation of your word, that there is a hope in laboring under your name, resting in the work of your son. Help us now to hear these words as you have provided them. And we ask that your spirit would come down upon our hearts and minds and upon our tongues and upon our hands and feet that we would serve you in faithfulness and response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's probably obvious for many of you what we're doing here. We have the account of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and that today is Pentecost, and we're going to have a sermon here in just a moment of the account of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it's obvious, if you know those particular passages, that we're going to be talking about language. We're going to be talking about diversity. We're going to be talking about dispersion and going all over the world. And so there's going to be globes in our mind. There's going to be the idea of different languages in our ears. And we're going to be thinking about the power and the movement and the calling of the Holy Spirit. But here in this particular passage, there are some just initial reactions. If this is the first time that you've heard the account of Babel, or maybe you can recall the first time that you heard about the Tower of Babel, that you might have some of these kind of questions like I did. Now, I don't want to impose upon you my minute way of thinking things, but I sometimes assume that there's some similarities in how I might think that other people might think, and I think I've heard some people mention this before, but some of the obvious things just about what's going on here, the, the people, God's creation, this is after the flood, this is a few generations after the flood, where 
there is now a good number of people, and they've begun to spread out throughout northern Africa and the Middle East and up into the Turkey area, and they're kind of spreading out. And then they're coming back together to this place that's actually in the Middle East in a place called Shinar, and they're building this, wanting to build this city. And they build this tower. And at first glance, if you just look at it for what it is, it would be easy to look at this and think, wow, is God some kind of killjoy that he doesn't like people coming together in unity, that he doesn't like buildings, he doesn't like towers? Now, of course, I think many of us can see that there's more being said here, and we begin to assume and think that even through the wording that there is some type of maybe pride here. And, but God does seem like his response has kind of a rough response. He disperses them by putting upon them confusion of language. But I think if we look at the words and we consider what is actually being communicated, we can see that there is a bigger picture. There is a bigger story being told here that fits into the grand story of everything that he has purposed since the very beginning of time into the end of time. Let's look at just some of those words slowly. Go back and look at these words here and see if you caught this. Maybe you already knew this and maybe you seeing it again would be helpful. But look at what the people of Babel are saying and how they initiate their phrases. It says that they said, let us. They wanted, let us take. These bricks and mortar. Let us take these things from the ground. This is bricks made out of the soil, made out of the stone, made out of the rock, made out of things from the earth. Same with the butamen is a type of asphalt, real sticky substance that is acting as mortar. And they said, let us, and they say it multiple times, let us make a tower that goes up. Into the heavens. Let us make a city, a people, a place of dwelling. And let us make a, what was the last thing they said they wanted to make? A name. And a name for who? Ourselves. Multiple times they said, for ourselves. Let us make this for ourselves. Let us, let us, let us for ourselves do this and do this so that we will not be dispersed and spread out throughout all the world. Where else in Genesis do you hear the word let over and over again and even let us? Where do you see that phrase? Of course, in the beginning at creation, when God is making that very soil, making that very material, he made it himself. When he made these very people, and then he also gave a command that has a lot to do with dispersing throughout the earth. That's just a bit of a preview, and I want to come back to that. But the obvious thing here for us today and how we're thinking, we're going to be thinking about language. We're going to be thinking about Here is also a story that some people, maybe critics of the scriptures, would say is more of a fable to explain the natural evolution of languages amongst differing people groups. 
But this is just some way that we try to apply some kind of story to make sense of it, to put it within our mindset of understanding as people just naturally did this thing. Well, language is a very unique thing in of itself, and I often like to go to secular writings and read the things that they write about such things because it's sometimes in those things where we are unified that magnify the areas in which I think that those who follow after the Lord of the Bible are being vindicated or being, not qualified, but being reinforced in our thinking When we look at what they said, there's a BBC article that talks about the uniqueness of the human language versus other people or other, not people's, other animals, forms of communication. Now, we all know that animals communicate. You all have pets and some pets that you have smart pets and then you have some really stupid pets. And, you know, we have a diversity of different pets and you know that sometimes it's the if you can give a command to a pet and they will do it. And there's ways to communicate. Sometimes some of you have pets that you can give a command for them to do something and they'll do just the opposite. So they understand what you're saying (laughs) and they have maybe even seemingly a rebellious nature to them, but they're communicating. We know that animals can communicate, but language and communication are two different things. And this BBC article highlights this, and I just want to share this with you today, because this is not from a Christian perspective of creation. This is a secular article about an understanding of the different languages. It says, what is language then? If it can describe the way we process actions as well as we can manipulate words. Understand from this perspective, language is not a method of communication per se, but rather a method of computation, of getting the data and understanding it. Other animals clearly communicate with one another, sometimes in fairly elaborate ways. Whales sing, monkeys howl, birds chirp, lizards bob their heads up and down in a way to communicate. Some squid do so by regulating the coloration of their skin cells. But none of these processes can be explained by language. What makes human language unique is not that it allows us to communicate with each other, but it allows us to do so in an infinite variety. A monkey can scream to warn its troop mates of an approaching predator or alert them of a cachet of tasty food. But it can't communicate something like, doesn't that hawk have a funny-looking beak? Or, with a little salt, this fig would taste divine. It certainly can't create nonsensical yet understandable sentences like, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. It begins to just explode when we think about the capacity that we have to use words and to mix words in really infinite different ways to communicate all kinds of different things. And when we study human language, our minds should really be in awe. Why should it be in awe? Unless there's something that we have that all the other creatures do not have. And as we're in Genesis, we know that we have something unique because we carry the very image of God. 
we can tell throughout his word that there's something very special about words, about word. He created the earth with word. And here we see that he uses as an instrument, an instrument of seemingly wrath, of responding to what we can begin to tell is this arrogant pride of these people that he is going to thwart their plans by not allowing them to continue in their unity of their language. And it explodes. And it seems at first to be that it's this kind of harsh. Like this would not be a thing that you want to do, that unity is a good thing, right? And here he is creating diversity and confusion. Well, let's think about languages in and of itself. It's amazing when you just think about this. And some of this is, you're going to think he's rambling, and I probably am. But there are, are right now, they say there are actively 7,117 languages throughout the world. And they say that on a conservative estimate that there were as many as 31,000 languages throughout the history of mankind. They say that's very conservative. I I have no idea, but that's what they say. (laughs) But over half of the world speak 23 languages. You can probably think of them. I'm not going to go through the room and ask everybody, but of course you have the Chinese, you have the English, Spanish, Arabic, French, Persian, German, Russian, Malay, Portuguese, Italian, Turkish, Lahada, Tamil, Tamil, Yurdo, I'm probably mispronouncing these because I don't speak that language. Korean, Hindu, Bengali, Japanese, Vietnamese, Telugu, Javanese, and Marthi, Marathine, Marathine. Those are the primary languages of over half. And they say that we are actually lessening in languages, that they're beginning to diminish, that um, every, let's see here, that since 1795, 61% of the languages around the world that once were spoken are now doomed or is extinct. And that eventually, that nine languages a year, or well, right now, nine languages a year, or one every 40 days, cease to be spoken. And eventually, by 2080, there will be 16 languages a year that will dis- disappear. Now, I'm not making any kind of historical redemptive conclusions about what's going on in the diminishing i could make some guesses i have no biblical authority to say that this is something that's going on because of the holy spirit but it's an amazing thing to think about the diversity of language the complexity and the history of language language in of itself should communicate to us that there is something beyond just evolution at work here but it is, that is the avenue. It is something very unique about us because we carry the image of God. We know that. The world should be drawn to that by understanding. But also, not only is it one of the most vibrant ways of showing that we are those who carry the image of God, it is by our language and by our words that we are most expressive in showing our sin. We see in James chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, cursing, cursing. I'm definitely in the South, right? My brothers, these things ought not be so. We see that there's both this correlation of what we have, this unique element of being human is having words and language and the ability to communicate in a diverse and deep different way by language Word is unique in that way, but also it is through that because of its elevation of us taking that image that God has given us and perverting it and twisting it. We twist our words in the same way to express our fallenness. And so as we see how this is what is unique about us, we can begin to understand that it's not just a happenstance kind of thing that God is saying something pretty amazing to us by giving us this account of what happened at the Tower of Babel, we begin to see here that this is actually a reiteration, a repetition of both creation and the fall. As we have this new creation after the judgment of the flood, mankind is beginning to repeat and mimic even creation by beginning to use the words that God used when he created the world to attempt To create a world for themselves. And we see that it's a replication of that in a rebellious way. We even see that it's in a rebellious way to what God said in creation. Genesis 1.28, he gave us the creation mandate. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He said that you are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then in Genesis 9, after the flood recedes and he is making covenant with Noah, he reiterates that command once again to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is a theme that will continue to go on in different ways all the way into the Great Commission. Think about what the Great Commission says for us to do to go into all the earth. To subdue it by making disciples. Think about in Genesis 9 with the mark of the covenant. He says to baptize. And to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Look again at this particular passage. What is going on here? They are taking what is created by the Creator and they're mimicking Him, but due to their own glory, they want to bring forth their own people. Every covenant that God makes is about His people. These people are wanting to gather their own people for themselves. They say, let's do this for ourselves. Let's build this tower up to the heavens for our glory. And then let's make a name for ourselves. This is the antithesis of 
what we have in every covenant that God is making, and they are, because of their language, by taking not just what's in the soil, but taking what's in their brain and in their mouth and what their hands are able to do, they are beginning to be very clearly, again, enemies of God. This is not because God is a killjoy. He doesn't like intuition. It's not that he doesn't like engineering. It's not that he doesn't like cities. He doesn't like rebellion. And it's not just that he is upset that they are seeking glory for themselves, but these are his creatures. It won't work this way. He has the plans. He has the formula of how things work. We look at this and when we hear him say, let us go down and confuse their language. We see that it is like he is imposing some kind of confusion. But let us be clear that his word, his very word teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. In that same chapter, he says that all things should be done decently in order. What is the context of that particular passage to the church at Corinth? That particular context is in the worship of him. They are taking the things that belong to him, including language and the ability to communicate in deep and immense ways that reflect his image. They're using it to worship themselves. Just as Eve would take the very creation that was put there before the garden and the command that was given by God, she took the creature... And wanted to use it for her own wisdom and understanding. A faux wisdom that was not from above, but for her own glory. So that she would be like God. And so here we have them doing it again. Taking God's creation, taking God's words, using that power of that unity that is destructive and is breaking it apart. And so God, it says that he is going to confuse them, but he is not the author of confusion. He is not a God of confusion. So how does this work? Well, we know that it is because rebellion brings consequences. He created it. So when let us do this in the making of creation, it's not going to work this way. It's not going to happen. And we see this reiterated again in James chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Who is wise? And understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The same kind of wisdom that Satan was tempting Eve with. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. Think about what was just said in Corinthians, that God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. Here it says that when there is selfish ambition and jealousy, that the fruit of that is disorder and confusion. This was inevitable by their own pride and the way that God had made it. It is going to bring forth confusion. It is a judgment, but it is a reaction to the creation fighting against the creator. We are trying to thwart the purposes whenever we take these particular things and use them for our own glory. But what we can see here in the grand scheme of things is that it is a mercy that God thwarted these plans. Because what we see here, just like we see when God shows forth the judgment to Adam and Eve, inside of the very judgment proclamation, we see the hope of future salvation. Here we see that God will carry out his plans that he started in the very beginning. When he said to fill the earth, he is going to accomplish his very purposes. Even if we try to thwart them, we can't thwart his purposes. We cannot stop his plan. He is going to disperse them by their confused language. They're going to be spread out. Their particular work of self-idolatry gets halted. It is a good thing that their idol is no longer in construction. And instead they are being spread out. They're actually fulfilling the creation mandate within the judgment that they were called to. This gives us hope that even when we take the things that God has given us, think about that. Think of how we take everything. We take his creation. We take our ability to think and speak. We take his name and we use them time and time again, as Calvin says, to make idols. We are constant idol factories building little trinkets of the Tower of Babel every single day of our life. And God is thwarting our plans. I don't know how many different conversations I've had with people in the last couple of weeks where I've said, isn't it good that God thwarts our plans? That's the great thing about age. There's not a lot of great things about age when it comes to your knee hurting and your sight going and things like that. But you begin to see through history how, man, if I would have fulfilled that hope in that particular plan, I would be so worse off. I would be a mess. God is the God of thwarting plans because he loves us too much. He loves himself too much. He loves his glory too much. To allow those things to continue. It says in Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. And the reason why is because in Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. This is a judgment story. But it is also a grace story of how God is going to accomplish his task. It's not completing the task. It is continuing the call. But there is a future hope. There is a future hope when we think about how the world today. You can look at how your own self will be mimicking of Babel by how you do those same things. And when you discover that pattern, you should say, wow, I need to repent. 
We're like being little babbles in our homes. We're creating little towers of Babel all day long. Let us repent. But we can also see how the enemy of God does the same thing. He knows the formulas of God, and he will take those formulas, and he will try to use them once again for his purposes. Governments, ideologies, religions, they need to have that unity to have power. They will bring forth people together and they will try to get as many people unified under that so that they can have power and they will go for a season. God will allow them for a season and then they are always destroyed. Their plans will get thwarted time and time again. Today we may get nervous when we see the unification of really bad ideas in our culture and governments coming together and coming up with certain ideas. One little news story happens, and the next thing you know, it's spread out, and everybody's thinking the same way about something that's totally opposite to the law of God. It's scary, but don't let it bring you to great fear because God will not allow them. God allowed them to a point to come together and to begin construction, to come up with an idea, and then he thwarts their plans because he will complete his ultimate goal. In, in closing here in Psalm 33, verse 8, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord, again, looks down from heaven. And he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Who he fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by the great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. When we go to John 17, Jesus is praying. Go and I ask you. I think I do this a lot in my congregation. Go read John 17 and read the high priestly prayer. It's a great prayer to read because if you think that any prayer is going to get answered, it will be the prayer of Jesus Christ our Lord. And think of those things in light of this sermon as your homework. Go through and look at John 17 and what he is saying. He is bringing together his people. He asked his father that they would be one. And what are they going to be one with? In his word. In his truth. Again, going back to the word. And he says, I have proclaimed your name to them. They are being brought together as a people for the glory of God by the word of God in the name of God. He will accomplish his purposes. And I'm so thankful 
that my time doesn't require that I have to close this up. Let's sing a song, and then Eric's going to bring this in with a home run. <laughs> Let us sing. <laughs>